I'm going to read from God's Word today. If you've got a Bible on you, why don't you pull it out now or on your phone or whatever. Uh, today we're going to be reading from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 17, and this is God's Word. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions that I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you've known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we thank God for his word that still speaks to us today. So we're into the second week of our devoted series. Last week was the introduction. It was kind of trying to speak into what this this series is about and what it's going to look like. And it's the first week this week of the formational practices themselves, spiritual disciplines to use the proper terminology. And it probably comes as no surprise that we are starting here. We're starting with the Bible. I wonder if you've ever had that experience. You watch a film and you really enjoy it. You might have watched it ages ago or whatever, but you've watched the film and in your head you've clocked that, I love that film, that was a great watch. So much so that at some point in your life you recommend it to another person and all is great until you remember that that film that you loved but you forgot that it had that one scene, right? That one particular scene. And you've just recommended it to your mom and dad, right? It's like recommending The Lion King to your three-year-old niece, forgetting about Mufasa's death and realizing that you've probably traumatized them forevermore. Or suggesting love actually to your in-laws as a great Christmas watch, right? The acting's great, the cast is amazing, it's a love story, it's lighthearted, and then you forget the whole storyline about the adult film actors. And these things are always, always, always worse when you happen to recommend them and watch them together, right? Shortly after Joy and I got married, we were around hanging out with my mum and dad on one evening. And at this point, my granda was living at my mum and dad's house. And on that particular weekend, my nanny from the other side, she was staying with them at their house too. So the fire is lit, I think it was like a Friday night, Uh, we're all in the living room, we're watching TV together, and all is great. We're enjoying whatever is on the TV. And for the life of me, I now cannot remember what series it was we were watching, but I will never forget what happened next, right? Mom offers to make a cup of tea for everyone, so she nips out. Maybe it was prophetic, who knows? Because next thing we knew, the series moves to a storyline about an affair that was taking place, and then it moves to a sex scene. 
at this point, sitting in a room with my dad, my nanny, my granda, and my wife, the cringe begins to start to take over in my life, right? You know that feeling. You are like going inside yourself, right? So the cringe is taking over. And I found, you know, just miraculously all of a sudden that I really needed to go to the toilet. So I left. Then dad just remembers conveniently that mom really needed help with making the cup of tea. So he leaves. Joy is now left with my nanny and granda in this room. And she can't even think of an excuse to leave, but she just gets out of the room swiftly afterwards. And that left my nanny from one side and my granda from another stranded in the living room together, saying nothing, right? Nothing to each other, nothing about what is on the screen, though they both evidently, deeply do not agree with what they're watching. Watching a sex scene together while the rest of us killing ourselves laughing or taking refuge in the kitchen until it was over. You see, the killer part of all of those things is the I just wish that wasn't there moment. Everything was going so well until that scene reared its ugly head. I wish it wasn't there. And the thing is, when it comes to this book, when it comes to the Bible, lots of us feel exactly the same way at times don't we? Like if we're really honest, we feel that way. Sometimes it's because of bizarre details in stories. Others because of the vastness of some of the things that happen that are so totally impossible in the human realm, like parting the sea or raising people from the dead. But really, if we're honest, a lot of the time when we feel that way, it's because we just don't like what we read. Like how it talks about the anger of God or judgment, when it talks about sin, when it talks about the violent actions of God's people in the Old Testament towards groups like the Canaanites, when it talks about divorce, when it talks about sexual ethics, when it says things out of step with how we feel or with the narratives that work in our world and in our lives, then we recoil, don't we? Like, I just wish that wasn't there. And we can all feel that way at times. But when this book is so ancient, different, challenging, scary, radical, courageous, and provocative. It's, but yet it stands right at the heart of our faith in Jesus, forming how we believe. And the reality is that if we want to know Jesus and follow him faithfully, fully, truly, then this book has to sit right at the heart of our formational practices. We are a people of the book. We know God through the book. We meet Jesus in the book. We see the cross in the book, the resurrection, the lives of those who gave themselves to following Jesus and set the church into motion. We learn about love and truth and God's best for our lives, others and the world in the book. We're a people of the book and we need to live with it open because we cannot possibly become like Jesus without it. So where do we start? Where do we start? Well, the passage that we're reading today from 2 Timothy, okay, and 2 Timothy is one of the books that we know now in terms of uh, kind of classified, right, as the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. They are letters written by Paul to younger church leaders, and this one is Paul's final letter, written letter, that we have recorded. Paul is writing to Timothy, and it's so abundantly clear right from the get-go that it feels as though, as his parting words, he cares so very deeply 
for him. Right now, he's writing from prison, and unlike lots of the other letters that have been written from prison, written from prison or in chains, where it's pretty clear that he thinks he's going to be released, or at least he suspects that way. This time, it's clear from the text that he expects to be executed. And he wants Timothy to come and see him in Rome before that might happen. And amongst the care and affection for Timothy is a focus maybe particularly on false teachers who were a really particular problem in that church at that time. And Paul is calling and encouraging Timothy to keep going and not become like them. It was a turbulent time for the church. Paul, one of its key leaders, was about to be executed. Timothy could walk away. Paul's word to him really had two points, which I think are key to us today. If we're going to live as Jesus people and allow this incredible book to continue to form us, and it's these, to be faithful and to be loyal. Paul is calling us to be faithful and to be loyal. The first of these is to be faithful. This is what it says in verses 16 and 17 again. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And right here, Paul gets right to it with what's so very important about the Bible. And it's this phrase, right? God-breathed. In Greek, the word is theonoistos. And it's the only use in the Bible of this word. It occurs one time, although the idea that Scripture was divinely inspired is found elsewhere too. But this word, that phrase, is only found once in the Bible. More literally, you could say, all Scripture is breathed into by God. In other words, as I speak today, when you speak, your words are you breathed. In other words, your words are carried by your breath. You breathe out your words and so does God. And this is what we get. And as a book, it seems simple to say that God breathes and we write. That's the story of the Bible. Human hands wrote it, but God breathed it out. And written in here are wholly different genres, law, narrative, wisdom, prophecy, poetry, letters, and the apocalyptic. God breathed, we wrote. And in this particular section of 2 Timothy, Paul is reinforcing just how important the book is for life and leadership. See, there's a problem going on in Ephesus. False teachers were having their way with people, speaking into their lives, leading them astray. And as a result, in Ephesus at that time, which is where Timothy was, as Paul saw it, the pervading culture of the city was beginning to invade the church. The whole of chapter three, verses one to seven, just before this passage is taken up with what that looked like. And Paul's concern was that if it changed the church, the church would no longer fulfill its purpose and God's truth would cease to go out into the world and invade it. In other words, if God's word doesn't get a hold of the church, the church would never invade the world with God's word. And the challenge is the same for every generation when it comes to this book. In a sense, all of us hold it in trust, in trust for others to receive, for us to pass on. And Paul is saying in verse 15, just to look at the impact that the Bible had had in Timothy's life in the past. He says, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
So in 15, he's talking about the book's impact in his life in the past, how he got to here. And then in verses 16 and 17, he's calling him back to the part it plays in his future. It is God-breathed. And to that end, God's word is always his word, always divine, the expression of his person. And so we need to treat it as such. I was at a conference a number of years ago and my good friend Phil Emerson was one of the keynote speakers at the conference. And just before him, somebody else had read a passage from the Bible and when they'd finished doing it, they'd set the Bible down on the ground and they'd prayed and they'd continued on with the the conference. And then they handed over to Phil. And I'll always remember before Phil spoke, as he got up, he picked up the Bible, which was on the floor and set it up on top of a stand. Later on telling me, you can't just leave or drop a Bible on the floor. It's God's word. It's precious And you don't leave precious things on the floor, do you? And he's right. You don't leave precious things just sat on the floor. This is God's word. So it has value. So it has authority. Why? Because if we accept God's authority over our lives, then we take the words he breathed into as having the same authority in our lives. It's not just because of whose it is. But it's also because of what Paul says it's for, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what do those look like, right? Well, in shorthand, okay, teaching, self-explanatory, right? What it looks like I'm doing right now. What right looks like, okay? Rebuking is more like conviction. What right, what is not right, Correcting is more like restoration, how to get right. And then training in righteousness is like a childlike training in the way of life. Almost think the scouts, you know, that sort of thing. In other words, how to stay right so that we might be thoroughly equipped, Paul says, for every good work. By the way, when you hear the phrase every good work, you maybe just think it means doing nice things, doing good things. But earlier on in Ephesians 2.10, Paul told us that that is essentially the goal of all our lives. He said this, for we are God's handiwork, masterpiece, whatever way you want to translate that, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, this Bible, this book, and what it can do is the key in your life to Christ-likeness and being all you can be. This shows us what right looks like, what is not right, how to get right and how to stay right so that we might be equipped to do and be all God has us for. That's why it's so important. But in a sense, if we're honest, this is really where the problems start, isn't it? As human beings... We don't like the sound of teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training, do we? Especially from such an ancient, difficult at times book as the Bible. Theologian Andrew Wilson talks about the three most common attitudes that lead to struggle when it comes to the Bible. These are them. The first is literalism. I find this one particularly poignant, having been told a number of weeks ago, or a number of months ago, sorry, at an in-person gathering here in church, Dave, I mean your preach today was literally flames. I mean, I don't really know what to say about that, right? I'm not sure there is a more overused word in our world today than literally. 
literally. Just for the record, I'm pretty sure that my words were not on fire on that particular Sunday. But this is where we take every word of the Bible as literally true, and it leads us way, way off track. We need to honor the Bible by taking language, style, genre, context, form, perspective, and theology seriously to try and understand what was originally being said. Literalism. The second is liberalism. And this is where we start to only accept the parts of the Bible that are coherent with human reason and experience, right? The classic example of this is Thomas Jefferson, who went through his New Testament classically with scissors and assembled his own version, leaving out all the miracle stories and statements of Christ's divinity because they didn't line up with his everyday reality of life. Literalism, liberalism, and thirdly, Wilson says, pick and mix. And this is the one that I think challenges us all. This is how Wilson describes it. A selective acceptance of the Bible whereby some parts are true and lovely and other parts are false and difficult. Under this approach, the Bible is valuable, interesting, inspirational, and helpful, but not ultimately authoritative, entirely trustworthy, or completely true. Usually, if a biblical passage fits with our contemporary Western notions of morality, then we accept it as God's word. But if it doesn't, like when it talks about the anger of God or repentance or gay sex or divorce, then we can emphasize its humanness, point out the limited knowledge of the writer, explain how they came to be so silly and move beyond the text to a supposedly higher ethical standard. It resonates, right? It probably resonates with all of us at points when we read stuff that we struggle with. The danger is when we start to believe that the Bible is just valuable, interesting, inspirational, and useful, rather than an authority, trustworthy, and true. And it's attractive, right? But it just simply doesn't deal with the fact that Jesus, whom we all follow, the one whose way we're trying to walk in, he just didn't see the scriptures that way. In fact, so many of the passages that we find most difficult, Jesus and the apostles too, affirmed pretty much without hesitation. They just went past them. Jesus said it was flawless. And it's very hard to argue that it's flawed based on the words and actions of a flawless Jesus. And that's just it. Ultimately, if we have given ourselves to following Jesus and want to be like him, then we need to recognize that this book wasn't given just to help us satisfy our curiosity or give us more knowledge, but to help us spiritually. To know him, it's way beyond learning. It's not the goal to know more, it's the goal to know him. When I think about... Uh, about most relationships in my life, maybe particularly as I think about my relationship with joy, the greatest, deepest, most intimate relationship of my life. It has been most profoundly formed around wrestling. If you know us, actually that looks more like arguing, right? And my need to create space for her, for her way, for her perspective, for her needs, for her in my life. In other words, and nobody ever likes to admit it, but it's the truth. I am edited by her. And that's just it when it comes to the Bible. You see, we don't edit it. The Bible edits us. And as it does, we are formed 
I find in my life, especially as I've taken time over the last number of years to do a master's, that as I am stretched, as perspectives and point of views are put in my eye line that I've never read before, that maybe wrecked me for a 48-hour period, as I work my way through them, wrestling, painting, at times going, I don't know what I believe about that, coming to some conclusion that my faith and my relationship with God is deepened on the other side. The first thing is that this book has authority, is consistent, is God's word. And we are to remain faithful to it. But the second thing Paul says is we are to be loyal. We are to be loyal. These are verses 10 to 15. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, and sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions that I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Before we had L, we decided that we would go for the birthing classes that the Ulster Hospital were offering. And they were great. They really helped us kind of think about what it was going to look like as we were getting ready to have a baby. And for those classes, you walked into what was quite a small room. There were maybe 10 couples. They were all expecting babies around the kind of general time scale that we were. And before the class, it's all chit-chat and, and kind of happy conversation. And it's all happy because everyone's expecting and, you know, everyone's excited about the baby that's coming. People are smiling and laughing. People are making friends and all of that sort of stuff. Apart from that one weird guy who wanted to wear a GoPro through the whole birthing experience. Yeah, people do strange things at birth. So everything's going great. People are smiling. We're excited and expectant. And then the midwife who was taking the class started to really get into the details of what we should expect during birth. And suddenly, all of the smiling and laughing stopped. Like as they start to show you what the various needles look like, as they start to show you what forceps look like, they start to run through actually what you can expect in those moments. And all of a sudden, faces got serious, and maybe particularly men start to look away. And as you looked at some of those men around the room, a great many of them absolutely had the vibe of, I'm out. Like, this is not what I signed up for. I'm out. And I say that today because a huge focus of the passage is persecution. The reality is that Rome had burned in AD 64. This letter was written just shortly after that. The Emperor Nero had blamed Christians for the fire. So it was dangerous to be a Christian and even more dangerous to be associated or have contact with a leader like Paul. Persecution was everywhere. Ultimately, Paul would be executed and some leaders had started to keep a low profile. And for Timothy, listening to Paul and knowing the persecution that had marked his life, this could well have been his I'm out moment. But Paul calls him to stand firm to remain, to continue in the way that you've known. And for Timothy, his life and his conduct had grown out of all that he had learned. 
From his early life, he had been taught the scriptures. That's what the passage says. This is not uncommon. In Jewish families, parents were expected to teach their children the law from the age of five. You know, I sometimes wonder about stages of life, stages of the church as it was known, and the pure investment in children's spiritual lives. I sometimes think, you know, what is our investment in our kids' spiritual lives? Because the reality for Timothy is that that investment from family had formed him. But perhaps even more significantly than the investment from his family from a young age was the investment from Paul. Verse 10 said this, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance. You see, he had learned from the ministry of Paul. That's no surprise, right? Paul was an incredible leader. Timothy was a younger leader coming under him. Paul had obviously had an astonishing impact in his life through his ministry. That's when he says teaching, way of life, purpose. But that wasn't all. Because Timothy had also learned about faith, patience, love, and endurance. In other words, he just learned from his life. He'd learned not just from his words or the sorts of things that we attribute to ministry stuff, the stuff that people like me do. He'd learned from the way that he lived his life. He'd been loyal to the words that he spoke, and now the call was on Timothy to be loyal too. And now, down the line, the call is on us to be loyal as well. To be consistent in word and deed in all of our lives. And the thing is, right, that for me, in my lifetime, maybe particularly as a young person growing up and coming through youth organizations, right, we always seem to roll that idea of word and deed, right, and just into the ethics bit of the Bible, the do's and the don'ts, right? But the call to be loyal is to live out a biblical view of the world, our lives, and God himself. It's way beyond just the ethics, just the do's and don'ts. Frank Viola wrote this. He is looking for a people who will take their stand in Christ. That's exactly what Paul wrote to Timothy. He's after a people who will dare to believe that they are part of Christ's beloved bride, a people who will defy what they see with their natural eyes and instead look through his eyes. He's looking for a people who see themselves as he sees them through the prism of divine righteousness, part of a new creation wherein the fall has been eliminated. This is the necessary beginning to fulfilling God's grand mission, to take any other view is to serve God out of guilt, religious duty, or ambition rather than out of love. And where do we find all of the information, all of the story, all of the engagement with all of what Viola has just written about? This book. The call is to be loyal in word and deed, in what we profess and in what we practice, in what we read and in what we do. And this stretches far beyond just what we do and don't do. It's in how we see resources, our finances, our time, our lives, and how we see love and forgiveness, how we see our failures, how we see ourselves, how we see the power available to us, how we see the movement of the Spirit, miracles, wonder, how we see other people, and on and on and on and on and on and on, in all of how we see the world, ourselves, and God. The book forms it all. And being loyal means being loyal to it all. And for me, when I read Paul, 
when I read what he writes about how he viewed his own suffering, it's obvious to me that he had a worldview, a view on God, the world, and his life that had been totally formed by the book. Because when I read what he talks, when I read how he writes about suffering, he's never dejected and out about it. He's not despairing. And that comes as a shock to us in our world, doesn't it? Because as a culture and as a people, we really don't like suffering. I think we're probably wired that way given how comfortable most of our lives are most of the time. But Paul's life, it wasn't comfortable. And he suffered a great deal right up to being executed in the end. And yet this letter doesn't give a hint of despair or regret. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, and sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. This is Paul. He's about to be executed. And then he says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The same Paul who suffered so very much would write so very plainly throughout his writings about his purpose, about his love for God, and his calling others to do the same. He had lived loyal because God had got a hold of him and shaped all of how he saw himself, the world, and God himself. You know, I often think about how we will display our loyalty to viewing the world the way the Bible does. It's almost certainly not going to be on Facebook posting about some topical, ethical issue and correcting other people being argumentative. It's almost certainly not going to be on just not having sex or eating too much or drinking too much or being greedy with money and so on and so on and so on. As important as those things are, you know, it's more likely going to be in consistent living. Living that doesn't just take its way through the moral ethical questions in our lives, as important as they are, but rather lets this book form all of how we view the world. You know, it just struck me the other day, for example, that the world of resources and stuff and money and comfort is so very much one of those issues for us in our world, in our time. And it struck me as I was praying the Lord's Prayer, actually, It struck me that we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. We pray, kingdom come. Lord, help me see this world the way you see it. Help me believe for and do all that I can do so that your kingdom might come in my life, the city, the world. And then, Lord, meet my needs. From that abundance of your kingdom coming, Lord, Meet my needs. When, if we're honest with ourselves, we usually pray and live this in reverse, don't we? Like, God, please provide for my needs, my wants. I need the hurts, the longings, the stuff that I've got, my eyes have got a hold of. And then, God, and then, if you've got time, your kingdom come. We need to pray and live loyal to the heart desire that says, may it be as heaven wants And this book is one of the ways that our desires and our hearts are transformed to not just live in line with our instincts to what our eyes see, but as he sees it. And we see that way when we let this book inhabit 
us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a man who's writing I so love. It's actually another writer whose writing isn't easy. It's hard-hitting. It's in your face. A man who would eventually himself be executed for following Jesus faithfully. He wrote this. The word of scripture should never stop sounding in your ears and working in you all day long, just like the words of someone you love. Ponder these words long in your heart until they have gone right into you and taken possession of you. And that's it, isn't it? That's what it means to live faithful. So what it means to take all of the book, not cutting out the bits we don't like, not setting down the stuff that doesn't line up with the stuff that we see in our world and we feel sometimes. It means taking it faithfully and living by it as an authority, as true, as faithful in our lives. And also it means living loyally, living loyally to it, not just in the do's and don'ts, but in all of how we see the world. Those were the words of Paul to Timothy. And those are the words of him to us today. The first practice is an open Bible. And that's what we're going to try and do this week. We're going to do the practice known as Lectio Divina. It's an ancient practice, okay? It means divine reading or spiritual reading. And it's a practice where we spend time walking through a passage, taking our time, pausing and allowing words and phrases, beginning to let our imagination flow as we read. We begin to let God's word inhabit us, words, phrases, and meaning as we engage our hearts and our heads, our emotions, our imagination, our senses, and it begins to inhabit us. There's a guide going to drop into your inbox later on today. I really encourage you to give it a go this week. I realize that your first couple of days, you might think, what on earth is this all about? But as the week goes on, you may begin to carve out space that you might begin to inhabit passages and passages might begin to inhabit you, might begin to form you, that you might live faithfully to it and loyally by it. Would you join us? this week? Would you take seriously the power of this book to form our lives, our whole lives?